0: Amen. You may be seated. As you turn in your Bibles or in your bulletin to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I do want to say again what a joy it is to be here on the Lord's day. You know, September marks three years that we've been meeting in Lee Summit um, with the desire to plant a God-loving, disciple-making church. And one of such marks of a church that we have desired is one that calls men to the office of elder and deacon. It's overwhelming to me that this has been our second ordination service um, that I've been able to play a part in in these short years. God has been good to us, my friends, and we should pray that he continues to watch over us and equip us for the work ahead, and we believe that he will. In some ways, this is exactly what we're going to be talking about in our text this morning. Last week, we heard a prayer from the Apostle Paul. It was a prayer of thankfulness over what God was doing in the community to prepare them and protect them against the world and particularly against false teaching. This week, Paul is going to request the same be done for him, for Timothy and for Silas, a prayer to be lifted up as they continue their journey in planning churches around the empire. And following his own example, um, Paul does not request prayer for his own well-being. But instead, what we'll see in our text is that he prays God would be glorified. And that the word of God would continue to be honored and go forward with power. For a church, and especially for its leadership, this should be a prayer that we pray frequently and often... This should regularly make it into our uh, prayer life and into our prayer language as we think about one another and we think about this community here. Because as we know so often, one of the ways that Satan quickest tries to destroy the church is by attacking those in leadership. And sadly, many, it seems these days, fall to such pressures. And so the solution will be and must be a strong prayer life from the people of God over those God has called. To that end, we're going to read in God's word a prayer today, and I invite you to turn your attention with me. We're going to be reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'll read the first five verses. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. And be honored, as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you. That you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God, and to the steadfastness of Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he place these truths upon all of our hearts and bless the hearing of it. Let us once again go to him now and ask his blessing upon this time. Lord, if you do not build the house, it will not be built. If you are not our foundation, we will fall like a sandcastle at the beach. When the waves and the storms of this world rage, if we do not have a firm foundation in you, if Christ is not our cornerstone, we will not last. And so we ask this morning, O Lord, be our foundation. Be our source of hope, our source of strength. May we cling to your word as if our very lives depend upon it, realizing that they do. We thank you. For this declaration and this prayer that has been lifted up, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we unpack your truths this morning. We ask all of this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. You know, one of the reasons I love the books of First and Second Thessalonians is that Paul and his co-writers, they're very practical um, in their writing. There's almost a constant shift, and I'm sure you've felt it as we've gone through this series, between dealing with specific issues that the church is facing and then practical application on how to live either in light of those issues or just in daily practice. And as we turn to this final chapter of this letter, we receive one of those passages this morning that it's just overflowing with practical application, Paul is speaking to the church knowing that his time is short, and he's trying to impart upon them these final truths that will be vital to their ministry, to their very lives, and to their health and spiritual well-being. And what I want us to do this morning is something we should do every time we come to a passage of Scripture. I want us to ask two questions, and we're going to answer them over and over again in our text. And that first question is vital any time you come to a passage in God's Word, you should be asking this question, what is God doing or what is God teaching in this passage? What is God doing or teaching in this passage? And then the second question, and it's closely tied to that, how am I to respond in light of what God is doing or what God is teaching? And so we're going to walk through our text this morning asking this and answering this again and again. And in particular, we're going to do this in three sections. First, we're going to see that we're called to pray for an effective ministry in the first two verses. And we will learn that we can only offer that prayer because God has promised to hear us and answer our prayers. Secondly, we will see that we're called to be confident In the Lord. Again, we can only be confident in the Lord because he's proven himself trustworthy and one to which you can place your confidence in. See that in three and four. And then thirdly, we will see ultimately we must let God direct our hearts to help us to love him in the final verse. We cannot love God without God first loving us. What a beautiful truth. That being said, let us go and ask our questions, walking all the way back to verse 1. And sometimes it it does feel strange to me to hear Paul ask for prayer. Um, If you've been with us from the beginning of this series, you know almost every other section, or at least every third section, is a prayer from Paul um, and his co-writers to the church. He doesn't get very far away from prayer. I'm praying for you, may God do this for you, let God do this for you, oh, that this would happen in your life again and again and again. So it may feel a bit out of place for Paul to turn that around and go, please pray for us, pray for me and my fellow gospel preachers. But I actually believe that Paul asking for prayer here solidifies the importance of prayer for us. Because Paul would not ask for something if it did not work. Paul would not ask for something if it was not good. In fact, Paul believes he can pray for the church and they can pray for him because it's effective and it's necessary. If we go to our shorter catechism, it defines prayer an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of sin and thankful acknowledgement of of his mercies. Earlier in our service today, in accord with God's word, we recited the Lord's Prayer. When we did this, we asked God to receive glory. We've asked for our daily needs. We've pleaded with God to grow our faith and gift us the ability to resist sin. And all of that we've said, make in accord to your will, O God. We have a high view of prayer. We must have a high view of prayer. And that's why Paul does not shy away here from saying, Pray for me. Pray for me. And what does he ask? He asks something very specific Pray for us. Remember, this is being written by Paul, Timothy, and Silas. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as has happened amongst you. If we ask ourselves the questions we posed earlier, we come to the conclusion, what has God done or doing? He has sent the word of the Lord to the Thessalonian church, and it has been honored among them. This was done through the preaching and teaching of these men, through the Old Testament text, through the local leaders who were there week in and week out when the apostles could not come. Being one of the earliest letters written by Paul, there's not a lot of New Testament letters circulating right now, but we do have the entirety of the Old Testament. We have the testimony of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and we have these preachers being faithful to the Word of God, and and that's what transformed the lives of the people in this church. That's what worked in their hearts, that's what changed their ways, and that's what drew them to God. And by doing so, they were taught to honor the word of the Lord. They recognized where it came from, and they recognized its significance. Think about this. Their society would have been influenced by all sorts of religion. Being a Roman province um, in Macedonia, they would have interacted with many different beliefs as it related to God. In fact, we've spent most of our time in First and Second Thessalonians combating false teaching, haven't we? For that's what bombarded the church over and over and over again. But when Paul calls for prayer here, he does so asking God to equip him with what God has already equipped the church. Think about that. Paul is simply saying to the church, pray that God would do for me what he's already done for you. He's done it for your life. Pray that he'll do it in mine as well. This would have resonated with the people because they had been personally impacted by this prayer. Paul, Timothy, and Silas will will go on to plant more churches and write more letters. And they knew their greatest need was the Spirit of God to go before them and to prepare the way. And that's accomplished through the reading and teaching of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. It goes forth and it blazes a path so that faithful men and women can share the truth in love. I'm sure some of you have stories that the Word of God planted seeds in your heart. You may not have seen them grow then. It may have been a Sunday school class, a grandparent, an old sermon. Maybe years, decades later in your life, God, through the Spirit, impresses upon your heart, draws you back to that time where you hear these words, where maybe someone was praying this for you, Lord, do for them what you've already done for me. Open their minds, their hearts. Help them to receive what I have received. Help them to love in a way that I have been loved. You see, this is a beautiful prayer here. This is a prayer that basically asks, God, do what you're doing. God, do what you've promised to do and what you are actively doing. And how beautiful is that, to ask the Lord to do What he's promised to do. How did we define prayer? For things agreeable to his will. And so, what is God doing? God is doing what he said he would do in the life of this church and in the lives of these leaders. How do we respond? What do we do in light of these truths? We receive it, we accept it, we live like it, as if the word of God has power as if prayer is mediation between us and God. It saddens me. Far too often, we treat the Word of God as a break glass in case of emergencies type situation. You know, one of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon, and it's dangerous to give this quote with a fairly new Bible, but you'll see it in a moment. When you see someone with a Bible that is falling apart, more often than not, you'll see a person that isn't. Oh, that your Bible would tell that story one day. He loved quoting that to people. That would be my prayer for you. That would be my prayer for this church. That would be my prayer for everyone here. That God would do for you what he has done for me. That God would reveal himself. That God's word would go forth. That God's truth would empower and transform your lives. As I've seen it done as you've seen it done, as we continue to trust that He will. What is that going to do? It'll change us. It'll give us confidence in the Lord. In fact, we see that in our second section, if you'll look with me. And it's not all positive. Paul reminds us at the end of the second verse that there are people actively opposing this work, the work of the church, the work of the Spirit, the work of prayer, the work of preaching. There are people that are actively challenging this daily. We know from the letters of First and Second Thessalonians that opposition kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. I mean, Paul himself, he'll be under threat of death his whole life until he is finally with the Lord. And many times the enemy almost succeeded. Paul, in in many of his litanies, when he is false bragging uh, to hush his crowds, will say, I almost died this many times. Let me count the ways. And we have to accept that, but that doesn't negate the truths that we're saying. He says, Not all men have faith. That's a reminder for us. It shouldn't surprise us, it shouldn't come out of nowhere. There was and continues to be those who do not have faith in God even after hearing the word of God. What do we do? We love them. We share the good news with them. We act patiently with them. But note this, dear Christian. You do not create faith in them. That's not your job. Don't place that burden upon yourself. You can't do it. You cannot create faith in someone else, though only the Lord can. Now, you may be the vessel, you may be the catalyst, you may cause the moment that the word of the Lord and the power of the Spirit open their eyes and their minds and their heart and praise God that he lets us take part in those moments, but don't burden yourself with what the Lord has promised to do. Faith comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word of truth. We saw that in the end of chapter 2. Our obligation then becomes sharing the word of truth, praying for them, and demonstrating Christ-like love, even if and when they persecute us. Even in persecution, that's our call. Our call doesn't change however they respond, and that may feel overwhelming. And that, that may feel too much. But once again, Paul is so good at what he does. He doesn't leave us there. But the Lord is faithful. These men may not have faith. These wicked men may despise my word. These evil men may not trust my truth. But God is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. We serve a faithful God We are promised God will establish us and guard us against the evil one. And we can have confidence of this because the Bible is a collection of markers that we see God faithful again and again and again and again. Now, make no mistake, I am not saying this is going to be easy. God has been faithful to people like Stephen. Stephen, empowered by the Holy Spirit, delivers one of the most Christ-like sermons in the recorded Bible. The world honored him in that by stoning him to death. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus Christ, teaching the truth, bridging over 400-year gap, telling people he is here. He was honored by losing his head in his life. Jesus Christ himself, crucified. We could go through all of scripture and we could see over and over men and women who gave up their lives. And if you look at that from a worldly perspective, you ask yourselves, well, where was God? We just, you just told me that God will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Well, the reality is God is doing so even in those moments. Because where do we go upon death? What is death for the Christian? Death is but the passage between this life and the life to come. Immediately, dear brother and sister, I don't want to be morbid this morning, but when you die, if you are standing, you will be with Jesus before your head hits the floor. You will be in the presence of God before your body stops moving. I can't offer you anything more precious this morning. I cannot tell you anything more wonderful And so persecution will come, life will be hard, but this truth still stands. God will guard you and protect you, for He is faithful. And verse 4 tells us, we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Now this is a funny statement. Paul has spent a lot of time telling the church all the things they're currently not doing right in first and second Thessalonians you're being lazy you're not living out the gospel you've got some really really confusing doctrine about the return of Christ some of you think he's already come back and then yet he makes this statement god is doing and will doing or will do just like you are doing and will do exactly what he has called you to do how do we how do we reconcile those things We realize that children of God will follow follow the will of God. We're admitting that God's will will be carried out through these people. We can have confidence that not perfectly, not 100% of the time due to sin, but through God's blessing, we will be sanctified. We will be sanctified. We will be transformed into His image more and more each day. And then one day, He's either going to call us home or we will see death. And we will be perfected. And this will be completed in our lives. That is guaranteed. That is truth. That is factual. And so between here and there, you are fulfilling his will. Even in your imperfections. Even in your shortcomings. Even in your missteps. Even in those times that you're, you, you look at it and go, why? That, was, that wasn't the right thing. No, it wasn't. And yet God will be glorified in it all. One of my favorite pastors and and one who I look to often, Dr. Vodi Bakum has a mantra. He says it um, often as one of his life mantras, and it's this. I strive through God's strength to be better today than yesterday and better tomorrow than today. And that's as far as he takes it. Better today than yesterday, better tomorrow than today. And that's as far ahead as he looks. And I like to think that he has Matthew 6 on his mind. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. And yet again, we find ourselves and we hear these truths and, and we say, okay, God, I understand that your word is to be honored and I understand that you are to be praised and I understand that your will will be done. But how do? what do I do? How do I... How do I live this out? How do I respond? If the first question is, what is God doing? Then how do I react to this? Well, he answers that for us too in our final verse. (laughs) And the beautiful thing, it's almost a trick question. There's really not two questions. There's really one. What is God and what will God do? Because our response is, God will respond for us. Our response is, God will direct your heart to love him so that you follow his word and his will. Let's look at our last verse. I, re- I have total confidence that God will do what God says he's going to do. Me, not so much. You know, I remember a joke once where a wife asked her husband to fix a leaky sink. And the husband replied to the wife, yes, dear, I will do it just like I told you I would. I don't need a reminder every two months about it. How often do we promise things that we just don't really get around to? Or even worse, how often do we promise things that we know good and well we can't do, but it was easier to promise it than to actually say I can't do it and then find some other way to get it done? We, we as humans, we, we have a fascinating mind and we think about things in an interesting way. But when it comes to the Lord, when the Lord makes a promise he will fulfill it and and the Lord has an easy out in this if you will uh, because we're told in scripture a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day for the Lord and so if it takes him a thousand years to fulfill a promise there's really no time that's passed it's not like God was oh I forgot about that let me go and fix that no God's will will be done God's promises will be fulfilled and God will care for us those promises to keep us from the evil one and to see us through and to honor his word, they will take place. And this scene ends with a beautiful verse. We get another benediction. In fact, a lot of the benedictions we use in scripture come from First and 2 Thessalonians. I and mean, we have one of them here. And benedictions really are declarations, they're prayers, they're requests to God. And it says this. May the Lord... Direct your heart to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Do you see what he's praying here? God, direct their hearts to love you. The only way they're going to obey your word, the only way they're going to yield to your commands is if they love you. But they can't do it, God. They can't do it. And unless we, we get this um, dichotomy where we go, well, there are some people of God that seem to do it and some that don't, and there's these holier class of people that aren't having to struggle with this. I want to take you to two passages from Paul just to make sure we understand the man that tells us this. Romans 7. I am of the flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want but I do the very things that I hate. Paul is saying, Paul is admitting to the the Roman church, I can't do it. I can't love God. I can't obey his commands. I can't follow his word without God helping me. He knows his own heart. He knows that it is through God's strength and God's strength alone that sustains him and keeps him through the steadfastness of Christ. Now compare that with what he tells the church in Galatia. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Both of these passages are true of the Apostle Paul. Both of these mark his life and his ministry. Both of these mark what's going on in his heart. God, I don't want to follow you. My natural inclinations actually repel me from your truth and your ways and your love and your kindness and your mercy. But when I say my life is not my own, it has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, I can say that my life is a life of faith because Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And one more passage I'll take you to this morning. If you need any more evidence that God will do all of these things that we've seen in our text that he's proclaimed to do, I want to take you to Revelation 21, one of the final passages in our scriptures. I want you to listen for the things that God declares he will do. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Hear the absolutes in that statement. Hear what God says he will do. When Christ returns, when the day of reckoning comes, when judgment happens and the church is glorified, God will defend His church. And dear brothers and sisters, if you're sitting here today and you're a Christ follower and a Christ believer, you can hear that statement as Christ will defend you. Christ will honor His word in your life. Christ will glorify himself and give you the strength to trust and obey him. Christ will transform your your heart so that you can love him, so that you can do all of these things. And simply put, we just accept it. That's our obligation in this, to accept. We couldn't earn it even even if he gave us a list. Now, Christian, in order to accomplish this, here's the five things I need you to do. We couldn't do it. We receive it, we trust it, we believe it, and we live like it. In our passage today, we've seen God's word is sent forth before his people with speed and honor. It always reaches its destination when it is needed. We've seen that God proves himself faithful. We've been promised that Christ will draw our hearts to himself. And in seeing this, we've been called to action We've been called to honor the word of the Lord by believing it and sharing it with boldness. We've been called to put our faith in God and be confident in his divine plan. We've been called to let God direct our hearts through the steadfastness of Christ and trust that his will will be completed. I pray that you're resting in these truths this morning. If you know the Lord, I pray that today is a day of celebration and a day of joy, knowing that God is good because he is. If you're with us, though, or you're watching online and you don't know the Lord, I pray that this overwhelms you. I pray that you're burdened by this list. Because these aren't your promises if you're not resting in Christ. This is not your hope. Your hope is in yourself. And if you all you've got to do is take a moment and do some speculation, some inward looking, and ask, how's that going to work out for you? How's that going to work when you stand before God on the day of judgment? And he says, what do you have to offer me? And you hold open your hands and go, well. But there is hope. Receive Christ. Trust in him. Rest in his word. Believe that Jesus died and that death was sufficient to forgive sin. Rest in that today, dear brothers and sisters. And ultimately, let's honor the word of the Lord together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is refreshing to come to a passage in which we read again and again what you have done, what you are doing, and what you promised to do. Lord, I take great joy in celebrating who you are today. I take great joy in recognizing that my part in all of this is to receive it, to declare it with boldness and trust that even in that you will do your work. We thank you for your promises in Scripture that tell us and assure us that your will will be done. Lord, work in all of our hearts. Wherever we are this morning, wherever we find ourselves coming today, whatever we brought from the past week, whatever we look forward to in the week ahead, be with each one of us today. Comfort us with your word. Challenge us, convict us of our sin, and draw us closer to yourself. Thank you for the church in Thessalonica and your faithfulness to them. We pray the same for our church and for our people here today, O Lord. Be with us today and each and every day until you come to take us home. We ask all of this in the precious name of Christ Jesus. Amen.